Hi, and welcome to the Trail to Austin, a place to get to know the people of Austin and how they became the people of Austin. I'm your host, Bob Morse, and across town, sing on a hilltop. Oh, yeah. You know, Definitely across town. Yeah. Maybe across time zones. Who knows? <laughs> across decades. This is my co-host, Joel McCall. How you doing this morning, Joel? Doing good. Doing good. It's a beautiful day to set a new heat record here in Austin. Yeah, I picked today to uh, smoke a brisket, so I'm going to have to go out and be checking on it when it's about 113 outside. Well, you should save money on charcoal. (laughs) That's what I'm thinking. (laughs) So uh, we have an interesting guest today. It's kind of fun. Um, Speaking of brisket. Yeah, speaking of brisket, a, a guy who's a little... Uh, has a little knowledge of the food industry here in Austin. Um, he's doing a docu-series called Reopen, and he's talking to a lot of restaurateurs here in town and how they're doing during this pandemic. And so I would like to welcome Christian Remdy. Hi, how you doing? Good, how about yourself? Doing well. Uh, really excited about the heat. <laughs> really, <laughs> you and and one other person <laughs> somewhere. <laughs> so, um, I was really interested because we got to I, you know, have been looking through your documentary and or docu series, and you know, I saw your newest one even that came out this week, and it's been really interesting because it's such a a varied response from the people so far about how they're they're dealing with this. So tell us a little bit about how you got started on this and, and why you wanted to do this. Well, so I've been, I've been shooting in restaurants all over the world for about 10 years now. And, um, I've really just grown to love the hospitality industry and, and chefs and restaurateurs and, you know, every bartender, like everyone in the industry, just, it's, it's a great group of people um, and there's a lot of passion there and there's a lot of, um, sort of behind the scenes, uh, just love of the community that they're in and, and, you know, chefs and restaurants are, are always, uh, it seems to me very big proponents of giving back to the community who support them so much. And so when all of this started happening, I, I have a lot of friends here in town who are chefs and, and restaurateurs, and, and I, I started talking to them because uh, when this happened, and restaurants were really kind of one of the first industries to be hit hardest by the pandemic. Um, and so I was just trying to figure out a way to do something where I could help them, um, because a lot of them were pivoting to going uh, to curbside and delivery uh, and so I had shot with a lot of these restaurants before and done little pieces for them or whatever. And so I just started posting those online just saying like, Hey, here's something I did for this restaurant, watch it. And then if you can order takeout or order curbside or delivery or whatever from these people tonight, just do it. It's great. You know, their, their food's great. It's, it's worth saving these restaurants. Um, and so that lasted, you know, I kind of exhausted all of my, uh, content that I had made and uh, right around then was when the government started talking about reopening and letting restaurants open their dining rooms again with limited seating and, and, and all that and so that was really the point where I, I kind of thought well I should I should start shooting something like I should start doing something and my my biggest concern has always been for the restaurant industry is that you know it's the hospitality industry and so everyone who works in a restaurant from the person who greets you at the door to the bus boys to everyone in between, like everybody has always been taught, put on a happy face. This is a hospitality industry. Uh, we want people to come in and feel comfortable and welcomed. Uh, it's all about making sure they have a good time, making sure they're comfortable and that they leave satisfied. Um, and so my biggest concern is always that if you go into a restaurant and you see everyone happy, Maybe you don't think about what they're going through right now. Um, and, and it's their job not to let that show. And so my, my thing was I really wanted to just give them a safe space to talk about what was really going on in the industry and what was, um, what was happening to them so that maybe someone watching this, because it's about a restaurant that they like going to or because they just love food and, 
are interested in that kind of thing, they'll watch that and think, oh, even though they're smiling and happy when I go in there, this is what's really going on behind the scenes. So maybe I'm going to tip a little bit more when I go there. Or maybe I'm going to order curbside one extra night a week. Or I'm going to go on their website and buy some gift cards just to inject a little bit of cash into their, into their registers right now. Um, just so that people can really help restaurants because restaurants are such a pillar of the community in so many ways for Austin and all over the country, all over the world. And so, um, I don't think everyone, I don't think everyone thinks about them that way, but I think if they went away, they would suddenly be like, Oh my God, my favorite place left. And, and that would be terrible. So that was really the jumping off point for this project. Well, very cool. So, Going back to just the whole concept of the hospitality industry, uh, what has the response been from these owners? Uh, kind of give us a capsulation of how they've responded. Well, I think that uh, overwhelmingly there has been uh, uh, there's been a lot of gratitude. The I think the owners would you know they'd love to be able to talk about this kind of thing. Um, and there has been, there's been, they've been incredibly open and incredibly honest about what's going on. Um, everyone I've, I've spoken to hasn't really pulled any punches or tried to skew it in a way that is, Hey, everything's fine. You know, um, because I think they're all exhausted and they're all worried and they're all stressed and, you know, there's, they're hanging on by the skin of their teeth, a lot of them, and they don't know uh, what's coming next. They don't know if the government's going to say, you know what, we got to go back to nobody in, nobody in the dining room. They don't know if a, 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 someone who ate there is going to call them and say, hey, I just tested positive and I ate in your restaurant two days ago, so you need to shut everything down. Um, they don't know if one of their employees is going to get sick. Um, and these are all super unknowns for them, and there's no way to navigate this for them, uh, and no one's helping them. The the industry has been fighting to try to get some sort of legislative uh, bills passed to help the industry, like they do for the airline industry or the mm -hmm. car industry, you know, and and no one no one's interested, um, and it's really unfortunate because um, the restaurant industry. I think I read before the pandemic hit, uh, they were the second largest employer. I don't know if it's the restaurant industry or the hospitality industry in general, but they were, it was the second largest employer of people in the United States just behind the U.S. government. Um, and before the pandemic hit, I think the restaurant industry alone was employing uh, over 15 million Americans. And of course, that number has dropped dramatically over the last five months. Uh, and right now what you're seeing are a lot of restaurants have been kind of hanging on and hanging on. And just this week, uh, a lot of, you've been seeing a lot of really high profile restaurants kind of closing down. People like, like Thomas Keller, who's just, you know, the highest of high end restaurants in, in the United States had to close two of his restaurants and not just like for now we're closing them, like close them there. That's it. They're done. Um, and I feel like that's sort of the first domino that's going to set, that's just going to be, you know, over the next three or four months, a lot of restaurants are going to be closing for good. Uh, and that's, that's really the problem right now. And so I think all of these chefs and owners and, and GMs and just everybody are just, uh, terrified of what's going on right now. Um, well, as you did this series, did, I mean, did you see any change in them? Like, Several months ago, they might have been more optimistic, and now they're becoming less optimistic. Or, I think that uh, no, I don't. I think that when this all happened, uh, I think there was. I think everyone was in a little bit of a daze when it first happened. Sure, but I think very quickly it became obvious that uh, they were not uh, that there wasn't going to be any relief, uh, be it from the government. Uh, helping them financially or um, the government stepping in and putting a lot of regulations on people wearing masks and social distancing and things like that that would help drive the coronavirus down and make it easier for them to reopen sooner. 
Um, and so right now I think that everyone's just very angry. That's what I'm, that's what I hear a lot of is just sure. for people. So how many different restaurants have you uh, done so far in your series? So I, I, uh, I've shot seven restaurants and I, uh, I'm editing the last one right now. And I kind of actually thought I was going to be done, but when the, when the episode started airing, I started getting a lot of emails from other restaurants, um, people I didn't know or hadn't shot with before, who had seen the series and kind of wanted to reach out and say, hey, I've got a story to tell. And um, it's really been incredibly uh, heartbreaking to hear all of these stories. Yeah. From people. And I kind of had thought I was done, but I think I'm actually going to start shooting some more with these people because I feel like they're stories that need to be told. So um, I have, I think, three or four more. I'm actually, I actually got, I'm going to Washington, D.C. to shoot one uh, at the end of the month uh, with a company called Mazaria, which is owned by a deaf couple, and they only employ deaf people in their restaurant. Do they have the crepe restaurant in Dripping Springs? No, but they are opening a location here in Austin next year. Okay. Um, but they, uh, they're they opening a new location in Washington, D.C. on September 4th. Um, Great timing. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to go, so I'm going to go there and uh, shoot for them, like the lead up, it, it was the lead up to the opening, be there for opening day and make an episode about that. So how do you feel about traveling? I'm not super excited about it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I travel for a living. That's part of what I do. Uh, a lot of what I do is, is food-based. Food and travel have really become intertwined over the last five or six years. And so um, I do, I travel extensively for work. And so I'm really used to travel. But right now, I haven't traveled since uh, last fall. And so this will be my first time on an airplane in forever. And I'm, I'm, I'm a little... Are you thinking about a body condom? I am. Uh, uh, <laughs> I think about body condoms every day, uh, but, um, but more, more, more so for this. Yes, uh, I, uh, I, I bought myself extra heavy-duty masks and the stock up on Lysol wipes and kind of the whole, the whole thing. So the nuts and bolts of this: uh, Do you own your own equipment? Do you rent your equipment? Do you hire ads and gaffers and uh, tech support for this for this project. So I do own all of my own equipment. I have a company, and, and we do um, we do shoots, and I do own my equipment. Um, traditionally, for what we do, yes, we have crews and camera people and sound people, and you know all of that, producers and everything. Uh, for this project, though, uh, it's just me. Um, I didn't feel I didn't feel comfortable bringing anyone in on it because. You know, I just don't feel comfortable having a crew out there doing this. But uh, more than that, I just didn't feel comfortable asking the restaurants to allow a big group of people in there right now. Um, and I felt like the ask was enough just for me, just for one person, one extra person to be in their space. Sure. Um, also, I feel like, you know, when you have 14 people, not 14, it wouldn't be 14, but I mean, if you have like four or five people hanging around, um, maybe you don't get as honest of a conversation with someone or, um, yeah, so I really, you know, I just, I wanted to keep it simple and very pared down. Um, it's been a lot more work, obviously running the whole thing yourself and making, you know, every frame has to be shot by you and, uh, you have to run your own audio while you're running the camera, while you're asking the questions and, uh, but it's been, um, it's been good. It's 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 actually been a lot of fun, and and the shoots are long and exhausting, but it, I feel like they're uh, it's working. So that's that's nice. So I assume through doing this, you've seen varying degrees of success of what people have been able to do while being closed. Um, so give us a little insight into that. You know, who's doing well? Who's hurting more? You know. What unique ways have they found to uh, maybe make money? Sure. Well, I think um, if you watch the the second the second episode, which is with um, Locadoro, which is a great Italian restaurant over in Mueller, um, they 
So when I was shooting with them, they were doing curbside only. They weren't doing any .NET. Um, and the day that I shot with them doing that, um, at the end of the day, they told me that they were going to stop doing curbside, that they just didn't feel safe doing it. Um, and they actually pivoted to uh, making meals for the Austin Independent School District for kids uh, and for uh, quarantined homeless. And so what they did was they turned their restaurant kitchen into kind of a commissary kitchen where they were making, uh, you know, normally they would make every week, they would make, you know, 1,500 meals for people, for people who were coming in to eat there and, and stuff like that. Um, and uh, all of a sudden they were making, you know, 5,000 meals a week for AISD kids and for quarantine homeless. And so they really had to kind of rethink and retool everything and, uh, and, you know, and make that the way that they make money because they just didn't feel safe. Uh, even doing curbside, they, they just didn't feel safe doing it. Um, and, and, and they are huge, huge proponents of, uh, their employees' rights. And uh, they've been fighting for a long time to try to end tipping and just have like a, a service fee and pay, pay uh, their front of house and back of house people just a, a straight living wage. Take that, you know, they've, they've uh, Adam Mormon, who's one of the owners, goes to Washington and talks to Congress. Like he's like, they're, they're an amazing couple of guys. Fedore and Adam at Locadoro are. Uh, they're really incredible, but that's that's one way that that people have kind of pivoted to um, to do something else in order to make money and keep the lights on and pay the rent and pay their employees and all of that. Um, so yeah, there's there's a lot of different ways that people are doing things. It's it's a it's it's good to be a, a creative entrepreneur right now. Uh, I feel like that's such a necessity. Well, it's a necessity. <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> I don't think anybody put out a handbook, the pandemic handbook. Well, someone should, huh? Well, I think Obama did, but Trump didn't read it. But anyway, that's another story. So I just saw the headline that they've extended phase four till December 15th. Oh, my gosh. Wow, I haven't seen that. Yeah, I just saw it this morning, uh, the stay-at-home order. So it makes me wonder how many of these restaurants can continue. How many? So... Given a simple percentage, how many are uh, losing ground? How many are staying steady? And are any actually gaining? Um, I don't think anyone's gaining right now. I think if, if you're if you are able to tread water and just break even right now, you're winning. That's what winning looks like right now. Uh, okay. Eric, I, the third episode, the one that just came out this week, uh, was with Eric Silverstein from Peach Tortilla, uh, who is an incredibly brilliant chef, but um, even more than that, is a real entrepreneur. Like, he is someone who understands the business side of the hospitality industry really well. And that's what his episode is really all about, the more of the business side and not you know, the emotional side or the food side or whatever. Um, and his, I, the one the one thing that he said that always sticks with me is that uh, that it has to be about 2021 that they've ridden off 2020. It, it right. just there's no there's there's no way for anyone to make any money right now, um, and so he just recommends that everyone push really hard to just tread water, just keep just keep your nose above the above the waterline till next year until there's a a vaccine and people feel comfortable going out again and uh and you know if you can do that then you'll be able to succeed but you know for even for a lot of restaurants that's difficult because you know unfortunately what happened was when the government said well restaurants can open at 75 percent occupancy um all of the landlords called up and said okay you're open again start paying rent and you know, 75% occupancy doesn't equate 100% rent. Um, and for a lot of these restaurants, 75% occupancy or, or, you know, and then, and then the local government said 25% occupancy. But even at 75% occupancy, 
uh, you can't do 75% occupancy safely in a lot of these, in a lot of these dining rooms because you're trying to keep, you know, at least a six foot distance between tables. Well, six feet distance between tables for a lot of these restaurants means a 30% occupancy. Um, but the, you know, the landlords don't, they don't take any of that into consideration. They just think, well, you're open at 75%, you're making 75% of your money, you can pay me now. Um, and so, uh, you know, for the, the restaurants, they don't have, uh, they don't have anyone fighting for them in the government right now, um, providing any sort of like rent relief, or debt relief or anything like that. Uh, and so, you know, I think a lot of these restaurants are just going to end up closing. And it's, ha- I mean, it's happening already. I mean, you yeah. can't, every week there's a, there's a horrible, horrible article that Eater publishes every week with, here's a list of the restaurants that have closed. And it's heartbreaking because I always, I always look at it to see who's closed. Um, and the restaurants that I see on that list are pillars of the community who have been open for 20, 30 years, some of them. Yeah. Uh, and uh, this is just completely decimating an entire industry. And then and, and look, I mean, the restaurant industry isn't the only industry that's being crushed right now. And really, that was one of the things that I wanted the series to touch on was that, you know, the, the, while this is about the restaurant industry, it can really extrapolate out to any industry. Could, you know, if you own any small business right now, a lot of what these people are talking about are issues that you're having, whether it's a, a bookstore or a record store or a clothing store, whatever it is, whatever your small business is, um, you're, you're struggling right now um, because people just don't want to go out. The problem with the restaurant industry is it's the only industry where you have to take your mask off in order to, to, to be there. Like if you go shopping for a book, you can have your mask on the whole time uh, or, or clothes or records or whatever. But in, in a restaurant, you have to take it off to eat or drink or whatever. And so that's, you know, that's the big issue right now is that the people who work there are putting themselves on the line um, because they have to interact with people who are sitting there taking their mask off and putting it back on again. And, you know, and it's just, it's, uh, it's a nightmare. Sure. So, Christian, I'm curious. Um, obviously, you didn't start this this year with the pandemic, but your background is, you know, obviously been in travel, uh, hospitality, stuff like that. How'd you get started in, in documenting that? Um, so I, um, I was a, I was an editor for forever. Um, since the nineties, uh, I worked, uh, I was, I was living in New York for eight years. Um, and I worked at, I was uh, one of the lead editors at Citigroup for their internal video department forever. Just, I worked there forever. And I um, had always wanted to get into directing. And um, while I was in New York, I kind of made that leap. And around the same time, I met my, uh, met my wife there. Uh, and we got married in New York. And she had graduated from UT Law School. And uh, had lived here in Austin for a few years and really liked it. And I had been here before uh, for South By and Austin Film Festival. And so uh, after we got married, we kind of thought, well, you know, we kind of want a house and a kid and all of that. And in New York, that's just, it's impossible. (laughs) Uh, And so we kind of looked around at different places and we thought about Seattle and we thought about uh, San Francisco, we thought about Austin and, we settled on Austin mostly because um, I knew that if I started doing, um, started directing, chances are I would need to be either in Los Angeles or New York. And so Austin was kind of right in the middle, uh, direct flights to both coasts. Like it really kind of just worked out perfectly and we really liked it here. And, uh, and Julie, my wife loves it here. And so uh, we just, we just kind of thought, okay, Austin, that's, that's a good place to go. And so we did. And, when I moved here, I didn't really know that I was going to get into doing documentaries and stuff like that. But I just, I, we, we got here. It was really just this, um, the synchronicity of like, we got here and the food scene in Austin was just starting to take off. Like people were just starting to look at Austin as a real food city. And, uh, it wasn't just about incredible barbecue or great tacos or Tex-Mex. Like people were really innovating here. Uh, the local food movement was just starting to kind of really take hold, and Austin was a, a real epicenter for that. Um, 
And so I had always thought if I hadn't gotten into film, I probably would have gone to culinary school just because I love to cook and I love food and, and all of that. And so um, when I got here, I, uh, I had bought my first camera and I thought, to, you know, I thought the best way to learn how to do it was just to make a short film every month. So I did this project called the 12 Films Project where I was every month I was going to make a short film and I was going to do narrative and I was going to do documentary and I was going to do music video. I was going to try to do, you know, every different type of it just so I can kind of get really good at it. Um, and the first documentary I made was about Bryce Gilmore and his Odd Duck food truck. It was back when it was a food truck before it was a restaurant. And I thought we had eaten there a few times and we loved it. Um, and I, I was reading about it and I thought how fascinating it was that, you know, a food truck is a difficult proposition regardless. Uh, but he made it so much more difficult for himself because he only used local ingredients, which meant when he went to the farmer's market, whatever they had, that was what he was going to base his menu on. And so he couldn't really plan ahead that all that much the way most food trucks would, where they just set a menu and say, these are the six things that we're going to make and always come here and get those six things. But every week, his, his menu would change based on whatever the farmers had. And so um, it was just that extra level of difficulty that he set for himself. But it was also, like, really cool because you never knew sure. what you know, you'd go there. And his food is always good. So it wasn't that the food, you know, was going to be bad. It was just going to be, you know, different every time. Uh, and so I did a documentary about him because I just thought that was a fascinating subject. Uh, and I was really into the local food movement as well. And as we were making that documentary, he got named uh, Food Wine Magazine's Best New Chef. And so when the documentary came out, the documentary kind of got folded into a lot of the press that was being put out about him. And so a lot of people saw it. Um, and at the same time, I started doing another documentary about charcuterie, which was uh, there was there was a company, a, a couple here in town called the Custerics, who had a charcuterie company. And I did a documentary about them, uh, and that kind of got picked up sort of as well. And there was just this whole kind of groundswell of, um, of press about the documentaries that I was making. And, uh, and so people started contacting me saying, hey, can you come to my restaurant and make a documentary? And food <laughs> brands got in touch with me and saying, hey, hey, we saw this. We'd like, you know, can you come do something for us? And so all of a sudden, I just sort of became the food guy. Uh, <laughs> and uh, really kind of randomly, you know. And, uh, but it was great. And, and we, yeah. And so, um, I started a company and we kind of picked food as our niche. Uh, and, uh, and then, you know, travel brands kind of got in on it because they, you know, we tourism board, we, we started doing a lot of work with the Hong Kong tourism board because Hong Kong is such an incredible place to go to and eat. So for a while there, we were going to Hong Kong one or two times a year to shoot, uh, with chefs and, shoot at restaurants over there and it just sort of kind of snowballed from there and we became a food and travel company. Well, I know, um, and Joel will testify to this. We've both been longtime Austinites. Um, over 20 years ago, fine dining in Austin was, uh, you got to go to Chewy's, you know, <laughs> you, um, the Texas chili parlor, if you want something exotic, you know, or something like that. I love Texas chili parlor though. That is a great I do too. Yeah. <laughs> I left several brain cells there. Oh sure, it's easy. Yeah. It, it seemed like uh, you know, probably around two thousand, it kind of exploded here, and we started getting a lot of options that we didn't have before. You know, it was you can have your cheap burger, you can have your cheap pizza, or you can have you know, but all of a sudden it seemed like there was all these new options. Do you? What do you think drove that? Do you know any? specifics on you know i think there were a lot of early innovators i mean i think people like tyson cole who did uchi and, and uh uh you know the the like the mcguire mormon uh restaurant group like perla's and and um, you know elizabeth street and stuff like that like there were there were a lot of kind of early uh early adopters who just kind of came to austin and realized like this is a, a kind of a blank canvas um, and you know, there's, there's again, like it's right in the middle of the country. So you're able to sort of bring stuff in from both coasts really easily. And, um, it's, it's Texas, but it's not, it's, it's not Dallas. It's not Houston and Dallas and Houston have great, 
food scenes as well now as well. But sure. it was really, you know, it was a college town. So you had a lot of different people coming in uh, who had a lot of different palates who wanted to uh, experiment, try different things or bring food in from, you know, their home country or from different parts of the United States. And so, um, yeah. And, and I think, you know, I think that was really, um, and plus, you know, I think once South by Southwest and the Austin Film Festival and uh, really kind of took hold and people saw that there was a lot of tourism coming to Austin, um, they knew that there were going to be a lot of people coming to Austin for those events who would want fine dining. You know, I mean, the, the Formula One racetrack drove a lot of uh, growth to Austin because they know that people are going to be coming from all over the world and they're going to want really nice hotel rooms and they're going to want really nice restaurants to go to at night. Um, and there's going to be uh, a lot of corporations who are going to want to throw parties. The Austin food and wine festival is here and all of those people are going to want to eat really well because that's the whole point of it. Like, so I think a lot of, a lot of, um, a lot of the events that Austin has grown over the years uh, has driven a lot of the need for, branching out into fine dining and just, and not even fine dining, just, you know, different mm -hmm. dining, yeah. not just not the standard stuff that, that Austin was known for, for so long. Yeah. I mean, it, so, it really going, opened up the options here. It was, it was kind of interesting. So, Hey, Joel, you had a question. Well, it was, I was, you know, in, in reading about your, your journey to this point, it seemed that you uh, had a little project called uh, "Basic to Baller." Yeah, that that kind of kicked the whole thing off. Well, uh, tell us a little bit about that. Basic versus Baller was a was a TV show uh, that we so we do a lot of work with TasteMate, which is a, a, a portal for food, for travel, for lifestyle. They're they're a, a huge huge brand right now, uh, and we do a lot of work for them and, and we love working with them. They're, they're really fantastic and, and we've done a lot of like branded content for them and a lot of uh, short format stuff and in uh, 2018 they uh, launched a television channel and they came to us and said hey would you produce our first television show and so we uh, we were like yeah of course and, and they had the concept of basic versus baller and it was uh, the concept was it was a lot of fun. It was basically uh, two people travel to a city, and one of them gets uh, a very small budget, and one of them gets a really big budget, and they have to do the city in the best way possible for the amount of money that they have. And so um, we found these uh, these two brothers, uh, Alex and Marco Ailing, uh, who are the Vaga brothers uh, on YouTube, and they have a huge following. And uh, they do a ton of travel content, and they're just incredibly great, incredibly funny guys. And we, we we shot the pilot episode here in Austin, and they came in, and we shot the episode. And uh, as we were editing the episode, we were we were kind of getting ready to do the uh, we were, it was going to be ten episodes total. And so um, we shot the episode here in Austin, and we're editing it, and then we left on sort of the big trip, which was we went to Europe. And we did, uh, we shot in uh, uh, Lyon, France, and Nice. And then we went to uh, Genoa in Italy and Geneva in Switzerland. Uh, then we flew to Los Angeles, shot an episode in Los Angeles. And then we went to Asia and we did an episode in uh, Taipei, uh, in Taiwan, uh, uh, the NTN in Laos, uh, Okinawa in Japan, and then Hong Kong. Hong Kong was our last episode. And then we came home and we did all of that in, uh, we shot the, the nine episodes we shot in six weeks. And then we shot the, um, the other uh, episode in like a few days. So it was like seven weeks total of, of production. Um, and yeah, it was an incredible trip. It was just, uh, it was so much fun. And uh, some of it, some of it, I don't remember anything about. <laughs> uh, just because, you know, we were shooting some of the episodes we shot in two days. Uh, some of them we shot in three days, and so, uh, you know, a lot of it was just kind of you got to put your head down and muscle through and get, you know, get it shot and get it done. Uh, but, yeah, it was it was one of the most fun experiences uh, I've ever had while 
simultaneously being just incredibly stressed the entire time. <laughs> uh, so which which content did they give you, basic or baller? <laughs> uh, we, had a, we had a pretty basic. Uh, we had a pretty basic budget for the show. Unfortunately, I wish we had had the baller budget. It would have been. Uh, it would have been a lot more fun. Um, the, the show actually, yes, it, it's streaming on Hulu right now. Um, so you can, if you have Hulu, um, you can find it there and, um, they are, they're really, really fun. And we tried really hard to, uh, to show a really good time regardless of your budget. And that was really the whole point of the show is that, you know, I know. And when I travel for fun, um, I don't try to stay in the nicest hotels and I don't try, I don't know, you know, you, you, you kind of say, okay, I'm going to do, I'm going to stay in a decent hotel because I want to save money to have a really nice dinner um, or, you know, or, or a really cool experience. And so I'm not going to, you know, and so you kind of, you know, parse it out that way. And, sure. um, and that's why, you know, I think the show resonated with so many people is because travel has become this thing where, you know, everybody can travel nowadays. Uh, and so regardless of what, how much money you want to spend, you should be able to have like a really good time. Uh, and so that was really the, the whole concept of the show is just let people have fun regardless. Okay. Well, along that line, let's say you have a blank check, an open-ended ticket, and you need to go have the one incredible meal. Where do you go and what do you eat? Oh, man. So... I, so last fall I went to Japan and shot over there for a while. And, um, before the shoot, I actually, I actually went over early, um, to go to Tokyo and spend a few days in Tokyo. Um, and this is so ridiculous, but the, I ate incredibly well because that's just what I love to do. And, um, but I think the, this is so stupid, but the best meal I had there, the one that I think about, more than any other meal was I had heard about this uh, breakfast place and, and a, a Japanese breakfast is very different from an American breakfast. They do. Um, it's usually like a bowl of rice, a bowl of miso soup, um, like a roasted fish and uh, pickles, like Japanese pickles. And uh, I had heard about this place that was just this hole in the wall. You would walk past it a million times and never find it kind of a place. Um, and, it, and I, I, I got up early and like hunted for this place and found it. And it was this, like, it, it cost five bucks. It was nothing. Like it was just like, but it was one of the singular, most amazing meals I've ever had because it was so beautifully, it was, it was completely empty. I went, I went when it first opened, it was like six in the morning. It was, it was just me. Um, they were so nice. They were so kind. They gave me tea and were very welcoming. Um, and uh, and it was just this beautiful meal that was so simple and so perfect and exactly what I needed that morning. Because uh, it was the morning. It was the morning after I got there, so I was a little jet laggy and kind of you know. But uh, but it was just so beautiful and perfect. And I I I I, I literally think about it like a couple times a week. Just how wonderful it was. Have you thought about getting into food porn? <laughs> I, you know, I really, uh, I, I, if you look at my Instagram feed, uh, well, so I know you like uh, travel as part of your background too. What's been your favorite city that you've uh, visited so far? I, so Tokyo is my all time favorite, um, just because it is, uh, such a mix of uh, the old and the new, you know, if, if you can, if you want that really super high tech, fast paced, you know, futuristic, find it there. If you want that, like the old school, like just beautifully ancient city, you can find that too. And everything in between, uh, the people are incredibly nice. It's incredibly just clean and wonderful. And the, the subway system there is baffling, but once you master it, you feel like you're the king of the world. Um, and um, uh, Tokyo, Tokyo is definitely one of them. I think uh, Hong Kong for me, uh, I've just been there so much that it's sort of a second home. Um, it's 
it's really just so unlike anything else. Um, people call it the New York of Asia, and it is sort of like that, but it's also the San Francisco of Asia, and it's also just this thing unto itself. And it is, again, that sort of like, you know, that mix of like, it's incredibly high tech and incredibly, like, you know, sky, everything's a skyscraper and everything is just incredibly futuristic and wonderful. Um, but if you're down on street level and you find, you can go down these back alleys and all of a sudden there's a guy, uh, you know, making dumplings over like an open fire and they are the greatest thing you've ever eaten in your life. Um, And the people are so nice and everyone is just so friendly and um, it's a little claustrophobic sometimes, but then they have these great, beautiful, wide open spaces. It's just, yeah, it it reminds me of the, I lived in New York for eight years and I love New York uh, very much. And it reminds me a lot of that um, in that way. And so, yeah, I I would say either Tokyo or Hong Kong for me. Uh, are my two favorite destination cities. Where did you grow up? I grew up in the Bay Area. Uh, so I grew up in Los Gatos, California, which is a, a suburb of San Jose. Uh, right. San Jose and Santa Cruz. Uh, and I, uh, yeah, I grew up there and, and I love I love the Bay Area. It's fantastic. It's way too expensive, but it's fantastic. Yes, and so ahead, you grew up in the Bay Area. Uh, went to high school there, I suppose. Where'd you go to college? How how did you end up in New York? I didn't go to college. Um, I what I wanted to do, I knew I wanted to get into film, and it just seemed uh, it seemed better just to go do that rather than uh, yeah. rather than go to school. And uh, I never really liked school anyway. I I, I, I don't know. It's, I, I knew what I wanted to do. It just seemed like a waste of time. So so I went and did it, and uh, you know I learned. Uh, I learned how to edit. That was that was my kind of in uh, to the industry. Was uh, right around the time I, I got out of high school and, and kind of bum- I bummed around for a little bit, and then um, I learned how to use like Photoshop. And at that time, Photoshop became uh, a program called After Effects, which was sort of like a, a Photoshop for video. Um, and it was at that time that. Uh, non-linear, like digital video editing kind of started happening and I thought, oh, I should learn how to do that. And so uh, I learned how to do that and and at the time there weren't a lot of people who knew how to do it so I was able to get a job pretty quickly doing that. And it just kind of went from there. I learned how to edit and got good at editing and got good at making graphics and motion graphics and animation. Um, And that's what led me to New York. New York was was an incredibly... Uh, you know, it was just a very media-friendly city, and so I moved. I actually moved to New York in uh, 2000, and when 9/11 happened, all of the work went to LA. Uh, nobody wanted, nobody couldn't couldn't get it. So I went to LA and was in LA for three or four years, uh, and then, um, and then you know, stuff started happening in New York again. So I went back to New York because I didn't really like Los Angeles uh, very much, <laughs> um, and. Uh, and so and then I stayed in, and then I just stayed in, in New York. Well, you alluded to it a little earlier about your wife being kind of the uh, genesis of you winding up here, but it sounds like you've made a couple of visits before. What was what was kind of your impression as you came out here? You know, Austin was always um, Austin was always great because uh, it felt metropolitan, but you didn't have to deal with being in a metropolis. <laughs> Like it was, um, it was that big little city. Um, and so I, the, the things that I remember when I came, you know, I came for the Austin film festival, uh, one time and I came for South by Southwest one time. Uh, and I don't think, I think they were a year apart. I don't think they were in the same year. Um, but, uh, I remember the bars were great. The food was great. Um, and I met really cool people. Like that was what I, that was really what I thought of. Like that was Austin for me, like cool people, great food, cool bars. Like, um, cause I mean, I was only here for, you know, like a week, week or two. Yeah. Yeah. And so it wasn't like I really got to see a lot of the city or do a lot of the stuff. Uh, and most of the time I was, you know, for the film festival, I was watching films and meeting filmmakers and just sort of doing that kind of stuff. And even for South by it was for the, for the film parts of it. And so, um, but yeah, I just remember it being like a super friendly city and, um, 
I could tell even then, I think this was like, it was like 2006, 2007, something like that. Um, I was, uh, it was very much like a city that was growing and sort of kind of becoming, like it was like shedding its skin and sort of becoming something else. And so um, I I remember thinking even then, like, oh, this is a really cool place. Like, I, you know, reminded me a little bit of like, reminded me a little bit of the Bay Area, actually, like the people and, and just kind of fun atmosphere of it. Sure. So, as you uh, contemplate your lot in life, which I'm sure you do regularly, what is an ideal project you'd like to tackle? That's a that is a very good question. I think um, for me, I've I've really gotten doing this doing the reopen documentary series is really sort of um, you know originally when I got into doing this I thought this was the type of work I'd be doing, not making goofy travel programs or making branded content. And, and those things are great. And I don't mind. I, I love doing them. Uh, they are fantastic and a great, there are so many worse ways to earn money, believe me. Um, but I have to say, I've really, um, I've really enjoyed making something that has a little bit of meaning to it and making something that, resonates with people in a way that is very real and not just like a fun way to kill a half an hour of watching, you know, a TV show about a couple of guys tracing their way through a city. Um, and so I think if I, if I really kind of pushed myself to try to get a series going right now, it would probably be something with a little more depth to it. Something talking about the food industry in a way, um, that is a little more honest and a little more, uh, a little less surface level, really kind of digging deep. You know, I mean, I, it's kind of a cliche, but sort of what Anthony Bourdain uh, did, um, you know, with his series and the way it evolved into the, the CNN series. The CNN series was brilliant uh, because it was, it was, you know, it was a food and travel show, but it wasn't, it never fell into any of the tropes that, uh, people like Andrew Zimmern or, you know, any, any of these other sort of uh, more sort of travel channel-y, uh, family-friendly kind of uh, hosts do. And, and and I love them. I love what they do, and I love that work. And that that's fun television. It's fun to make. It's fun to watch. Um, but I think I definitely would love to be able to do something that, um, that speaks to, I think, uh, what more more about what, maybe the restaurants are doing rather than what the people eating there are doing. If, if you kind of, you know, if more, more digging deep into the industry itself rather than uh, just, you know, how good their food is or how good their drinks are. Yeah. What do you think of these reality competitions that are out there now? You know, I, I don't have a problem with that. I, I you know, I think in like cooking show, like top chef is a, they're great. Like they do, yeah. They're like a legitimately good uh, cooking uh, competition series. Um, I think that, you know, um, there are competition series like that, like Hell's Kitchen and stuff like that, which is more about sort of demeaning people and yeah, personality versus substance. Right. Yeah. And growing taste and stuff like that. And that kind of stuff's not really for me. I don't really watch that. But, um, but I also like, um, you know, it's really funny during this whole pandemic. I have a daughter and she's, uh, she's almost eight and, you know, she watches stuff on Netflix and, and things like that. And, um, without any prompting whatsoever, she started watching baking shows, baking competition shows. And I swear to God, I didn't push her into that at all. Uh, <laughs> but she just started watching them and started really getting into them. And Netflix has, Netflix actually has some really good content that's really just, it's about the fun and the fun of it. It's, you know, it's not about people being horrible to each other, and it's not about saying you did a bad job. They're very positive. Even when somebody messes up, they find a way to make it a positive, and they're really fun, and it's goofy and funny, and they don't take it seriously at all. Um, and so, like, I really love that because it is a great way to get, you know, someone into baking or cooking or whatever who can watch those kind of shows and not feel bad. They, they're watching someone screw up. They're making, you know, they're watching people make something that doesn't look great. You know, they, they probably taste really good, but it doesn't look really good. Um, and the judges aren't horrible 
about it. They're like, you know what? And it's okay. It doesn't look good, but it tastes great. And so, and that's all that matters because you're putting it in your mouth. You're chewing it up. It doesn't matter after that. Uh, <laughs> and so, and so, yeah. And so I, I, like, I really like what they're doing with the cooking competition on Netflix right now. I think they're, they are finding a good middle ground of it's, it is a competition. Someone has to win, but nobody has to feel bad doing it. Uh, no one has to feel bad losing. And that's, I think that's really what it should be because cooking is fun. Like cooking is a, it should be fun for people. It should be nourishing, not only for the people who eat the food, but for the person making it. And so, okay. So what is your number one go-to meal to cook by yourself, all the courses if the Dalai Lama was coming over? Oh, if the Dalai Lama was coming over, I guess it would have to be vegetarian. Uh, Okay. Well, (laughs) Pick, pick, pick the person. Sure. So I, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm totally this guy, but I love a good steak on on a charcoal grill. Um, and uh, I just really uh, got into um, smoking mushrooms lately. So I'll, I'll, I'll slice mushrooms. <clears throat> you can use any kind of mushroom, uh, but mushrooms are super porous. And so I'll put uh, I'll put a big hunk of butter, a ton of garlic, shallots, parsley, uh, in a cast iron, and just pack it with mushrooms. And I'll put it on the grill and close the lid. And put a bunch of like wood in there, close the lid, and 35, 40 minutes later, you've got smoked mushrooms in butter that's been smoked with garlic and shallots and, and everything else and you put some salt on there and I kid you not it's one of the greatest things you'll ever make in your life and it's the easiest recipe in the world and you pair that with a steak and some like you know, put some broccolini on the, on the grill and char it up and honestly you really don't have to, you can't eat better than that like that's that's my that's my go-to like I'm gonna just make dinner real quick and that's what I'm gonna do uh, and you just slice the steak and you put some really good salt on it some Malden salt and if you're feeling particularly fancy, you can make like a gremolade or like a, a little, you know, sauce to go on it. A little, you know, put some, uh, I, what do I do? I do cilantro. Uh, I toast walnuts, put them in a, a fruit, like a, a, a blender kind of thing, a food processor. I put cilantro, uh, olive oil, salt, little garlic, you know, just uh, lemon juice. Pulse it a few times so it's, you know, kind of a chunky, salsa sort of consistency and put that on the steak and, oh, my God. Well, I know what I'm doing tonight. Well, good. I think you should. get. I'll let you know. Yeah, they're <laughs> really good. The mushrooms are ridiculous. It's kind of crazy. Now, I've got the smoker running today, and um, this is, you know, hatch season, as they put right. it. Yeah. <laughs> so. Oh, yeah. Central market hatch season, sure. Yeah, so I was going to throw a couple of hatches on there. I've done this with jalapenos before, but never with hatches. And made a uh, jalapeno ranch, smoked jalapeno oh. ranch dip. Yeah, I, I, I would eat that. I would eat your steak. <laughs> I'm going to try it with uh, hatch peppers. We'll see how it goes this time. I'll give you my address. You can just drop some off my house. Sweet. All right. So, <laughs> you know, kind of what we do on this is we – we also want to get a little bit of your background with Austin, you know, and stuff like that. And like I said, you've told us a little bit about how you wound up here. But so what's kind of your go-to place when you got some time off and you, you just want to knock around and. Pre-pandemic. What's that? Pre-pandemic. Yes. Pre-pandemic. Um, that's a really good question. So I was, um, Think of like a good so I mean you know I have a daughter and we love the pools here um, you know we um, obviously not now but last summer last summer we spent a lot, a lot of time um, at D Betty uh, we, we would go pretty much every weekend we would go swimming and then they have uh, there's a place called Pool Burger which is right just like right up the street uh, and we would you know you go to D Betty at around nine o'clock you swim for a couple hours you go up to Pool Burger and get yourself some lunch and uh, you know, they have uh, uh, this pineapple lemonade that you can put some adult beverage <laughs> into. Uh, so, you know, and then, you know, we bring some of our friends and the parents and we'd all get together do Betty and swim and everybody would have a great time. So that, I think I love the pools here in Austin. Um, and I love, uh, we, we live in the Brentwood neighborhood. So we have a great 
uh, Brentwood pool uh, is fantastic. And I taught my son to swim there. Oh, really? Oh, that's yeah. awesome. I love, yeah, we love the pools. We, my daughter is just a, uh, she loves the water and she'll, you know, she'll swim for four hours in the water. Um, but yeah, the, the pools here in Austin are probably one of my favorite parts of it. Um, I love, you know, and I, we love the public library, the big downtown public library. We go there a lot. Um, and we walk around downtown in that, in that sort of neighborhood around like Seaholm and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's real pretty. And yeah, there's Austin is beautiful. It's a beautiful city. And, uh, and I love the way, I love the way it's growing because it feels very planned. Um, they're not just throwing up a ton of buildings and saying like, oh, you know, whatever. Uh, it feels very like each building sort of complements each other. And I don't know if that's just luck or, or what, but if you look at the skyline, it doesn't feel disjointed. Like it feels planned a little bit, which I like. So, yeah. <laughs> You're talking to two guys who were here before there was a skyline. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm definitely late to the party, so I, I get it. I totally do. But since you've been here, um, yeah, you've been here a few years now. What do you think the biggest changes you've seen? The biggest changes I've seen, I think, are, I mean, you know, I think, the, I mean, I keep coming back to it, but I think, you know, the restaurant industry here in Austin um, has begun launching a lot of careers, um, and I think that is great. Um, it's also becoming a destination for chefs from other cities to start opening restaurants here, which I think is great. Um, I think overall, this is, I'm, I mean, come on, the traffic is, and, and I'm sure for you, for, for, for you guys who have been here a lot longer than me, I'm sure the traffic has changed quite a bit. But even for me, just in the past, like, uh, five or six years, uh, the traffic has, you know, just, sure. I mean, it feels like it's quadrupled. It's horrible. Um, but that's, you know, I remember, come on, you have to complain about the traffic. Uh, at some point during one of these, things. it's a requirement. It really is like yeah, yeah. I feel like I want to get like without dinged if I don't talk about traffic. Um, always... Go ahead. Oh no, no, but I mean, but but I think you know overall, I feel like the amenities of Austin have grown. There's great restaurants, but also great hotels here. Um, there's a lot of uh, more activities. I feel like just kind of fun. Uh, things to do and people are really stretching to find because i mean you know for the for the bulk of the year it's not always nice to be outside like you know especially today when it's supposed to be like 107 degrees like you want to find indoor activities especially especially now that i have a kid where it's like you know okay well you can't be outside for a month and a half pretty much out of the year what are we going to do to be inside and obviously now uh we don't do any of those things we're all just sort of like huddled up in the house but um, but I do feel like there's been uh, a big uh, expansion of just things to do for kids here in Austin because there's so many families here now. And, uh, there is that need of, of finding stuff to do where you can't, you know, you just can't like let them run around outside because it's, you know, they're going to, you know, evaporate. Vaporize. Yeah. So that's one of, that's another thing I, I feel like is, has, uh, there's been a lot of growth in Austin, just stuff for families to do. Sure. So, um, Joel, do you want to ask the question? Or you want no, to... you go for it. Okay. It's your fave. Oh, is this, oh, is this a special question? I mean, oh yeah, this is one we always have fun with. It's the so, traditional question. Yeah. Okay. Since, uh, Austin's motto is keep Austin weird. What's the weirdest thing you've seen since you've been here? Oh man. The weirdest thing I've seen since I've been here. <sighs> Um, well, I was shooting down, uh, I was shooting down on South Congress once and, um, there was a guy wearing a, uh, American flag as a cape, like tied around his, and he was riding a bicycle, but that's all he was wearing was the American flag <laughs> as a cape. Uh, no, 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 no shoes. I mean, literally this, that was it, the cape. Long song. <laughs> oh, he was just letting it all out. He was keeping it weird. Wow. Uh, and that's uh, a new one, Bob. Yeah. Never and, heard of and, that guy. I I almost like turned the camera on and was 
like, yeah, I got to get this. But I felt like, you know what? He's doing his thing. I'm just not going to play this fine. But that was, yeah, he was right. He was just, and, and not like, you know, he somehow lost his clothes and was trying to get home really quick in order to put something on. Like, I think he was really into, this was it. American flag. It was like his own version of Captain America. He was a superhero. <laughs> Uh, but you know, with the cape and everything, but he just decided that was all he needed to wear that day. A one man parade. Yep. He certainly was. And everyone honked, people were honking and cheering and you know, and it was, it was one of those moments where you're kind of like, okay, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <Good on. laughs> I love it. We've heard a couple of times about, and I think we've both seen him thong man who rides his bicycle with a thong, but yeah, we've not yeah. heard. Naked Captain America on the bike. <laughs> Captain America, he's yeah, he's 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 a real hero out there, and I don't know where he ended up, and I've never heard of anyone else talk about him, so I don't know if that was just a one-time thing. He lost a bet, maybe, or I don't know what it was, but he you was just got lucky. He's like not ashamed at all to be out there doing it. Really well, I hope he's wearing a mask. Yes, I hope he's. I hope. I hope if anything, he's just wearing a mask. That's all. <laughs> With a, like an American flag mask. Right, exactly. Yeah. So, kind of, um, usually our, our kind of last question is, if you had to give advice to anybody moving to Austin, besides don't, what would it be? <laughs> um, buy a house five years ago. Uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, um, I think, right. I think, you know, I would say be really mindful about what, uh, what neighborhood you move to. Um, because while Austin's not a very big city, it is, the neighborhoods are very specific. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, whether you choose to live like, you know, where I live, which is like Brentwood, Crestview, like that's very family friendly, very suburban. Um, and what surrounds it is a little more, a little rougher around the edges. There's a lot of growth on, on Lamar and on Burnett, but they're still kind of, you know, they're still a little rough around the edges. Um, whereas like, if you go to like Westlake or if you go to Hyde park, there's a lot more sort of little tiny shops and mom and pop places like Antonelli's, which is fantastic. I love that place. Um, but, um, so I would almost say if you're going to move to Austin, my wife and I did this where we, when we moved here, we actually just rented an apartment. Uh, for the first year and just to sort of say like, where do we want to live? Like, where, like, we're not really sure where we're going to end up. And so we, we stayed in our apartment for a year and just kind of like looked around and really kind of got a sense of the city and, uh, and where we, where we wanted to live and how the freeways work and how the, you know, just the kind of major artery streets work and all of that. And and we kind of, and we landed in Brentwood, which is, you know, we've been here now for, um, almost nine years and it's been, we love it. We love our house. We love this neighborhood. Yeah, I think and, uh, pretty much everybody that lives there loves that area. Little Delhi. Oh yeah. We, we are two blocks away from Little Delhi. And uh, yeah. Arlen's grocery store right there has, has, you know, uh, become a, a real place to go get food now. Um, and, uh, yeah. And, and, and like, you know, we're close to Mueller, which has great restaurants and Burnett is, is becoming this huge, uh, place for we can get great food over there now, and so yeah, it's it's really um, it's it's a it's definitely an area that's that's growing, and we we love it. Well, hey, so, yeah, I'm that's, a... that would be good. Oh no, I was just saying that that would be my recommendation is to really uh, really figure out where you want to live first. Sure. Well, fantastic. I have to say, I have thoroughly enjoyed uh, conversation with you, Kristen. Thank you, sir. Thank you, and thank you so much for having me. This has been this has been a lot of fun to talk about Austin. I never get to really talk about it, so it's awesome. Well, yeah, that's a, and that's what we wanted to do is have you on because you've got a unique perspective about things here. So it's kind of fun to to get that from a little different standpoint. We hear from yeah. artists and and stuff like that, and somebody who's who's documenting the city. That's a little different. Yeah. So let us know where people can see the reopen docs. So uh, the the website is reopendoc.com. Um, the, re, reopen doc, like documentary, .com. Um, that's where you can see uh, there's new episodes go up every Tuesday uh, and all the old episodes are on there as well. And so um, if you want to 
binge watch it, you can do that, or you can just kind of whatever, watch them as you want. They're about 10 minutes long, so um, they're not a huge ask of your time. But um, yeah, and then uh, my, my company's website is palettefilms.com, and, and you know you can see uh, there's an episode of Basic Versus Baller on there if you want to watch it, and a lot of other food and travel stuff if you're into that kind of thing. No, it's Fantastic. great. I've, I've watched all three that have come out so far and, and they're each unique and different. I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of fun because the, the different personalities of the different restaurateurs. I, that was a big thing for me. In fact, I always said if they start feeling similar, I was going to stop doing them because I really, you know, that was, I don't want to just keep making the same episode over and over again. So I'm glad to hear that. And I think the next one, the one that comes out on uh, this Tuesday is, uh, uh, it's it's one of my favorites. I mean, they're all. I hate to say it, but they're all my favorites. Like each time I finish, I'm like, Ooh, that one's my favorite. And so, um, <laughs> but uh, but this one this one coming out is 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 really great. It's about uh, a restaurant called Suerte, which is over on the east side, and they uh, they it's run by a couple of guys who just are really just good people. Uh, so yeah, I hope I hope everybody uh, goes and takes a look. Well. Um, I hope they do too as well because it, it's really interesting, people. It's um, I, I've really enjoyed it, and that was one of the reasons we wanted to have Christian on. Is I saw this and I thought, well, this is unique. So it, it's good to have you here, and thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Sure. So for Joel, myself, and Christian, we'll say see you next time on the trail to Austin. Thanks, everyone.